Hello and welcome to the 1.7 million stories of the CWGC, where we explore the history of the First and Second World Wars, discover some of the stories of those who served and died during both conflicts, and discuss the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. My name is Max Dutton, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm joined by two great guests this time, Nick Hewitt from the National Museum of the Royal Navy and Siggy Lee from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Hi guys, could you both introduce yourselves? Hi, um, I'm Siggy. I work for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission as the Conservation Officer. Hi, yeah, uh, I'm Nick Hewitt. I'm Head of Research and Collections for the National Museum of the Royal Navy, based down in Portsmouth. So this time, uh, we are going to be talking all things Royal Navy, known as the Senior Service because the Royal Navy actually predates the British Army by more than 100 years. I'm going to be asking our guests about the history and role of this service branch during the World Wars, and we are going to discuss some of the challenges the CWGC face when commemorating those lost at sea. And, as a special topic, because we are approaching the 75th anniversary of Victory Over Japan Day, we are going to explore the fascinating story of the Royal Navy in the Far East. I'll also be talking to Rich Hills, a former Royal Marine. Today, he is the CWGC's Director of Africa, Asia and Pacific Area, and he is going to be telling us about his top three desert island cemeteries and what our staff get up to out in the Far East. Having flown for several hours from Delhi to Dimbapur up into the state of um, Nagaland in northeast India, it's then a four-hour drive up into the mountains to get to this little hill station, Kahima. Perched in the middle of this slightly large village, hill village, is, is our cemetery on the original spot where the Japanese army was fought to a standstill. Okay, let's get started and dive into our first topic for this week, the Royal Navy. I want to begin by reading out something I found on the Royal Navy's website, which explains what they do today. In times of peace and conflict, the Royal Navy is key to Britain's prosperity and success. We help to stabilise the seas, keeping the maritime trade that's the lifeblood of the UK economy flowing. We act as a guardian and a diplomat, as a humanitarian force for good and a peacekeeper on the global stage. Nick, the Royal Navy clearly provides a vital role today. Tell us a little bit about the history of the senior service. Well, it, well, it does, and that, that statement clearly, clearly spent a lot of time thinking that one out. That statement really does sum it up, um, that the Royal Navy is, is the key defender of trade, of prosperity, of peace and uh, freedom of the seas, and that's been its role um, since its foundation. But there's also a clue in that statement, and if you unpick it and you look at it, almost all of those important functions take place over the horizon. They take place away from Britain, out of sight of British people, and that, I think, provides something of a clue as to why sometimes the naval dimension of quite a lot of campaigns get overlooked, and sometimes we we miss out some of the things that the Navy's been up to historically. So one of the uh, most important moments in the history of the Royal Navy was, of course, during the First World War. What, What was the role of the Royal Navy during a conflict that is very much remembered today for trenches on land rather than ships at sea. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. That The 
the First World War is perceived in our, in our popular memory as a land campaign, and it's all about trenches. It's actually perceived as a European campaign as well. We think about trenches in France and Flanders, um, and mud and blood and rats and poetry, and that's what we do. The, the Navy's role in the First World War was absolutely pivotal, but it was a hard role to explain to the public then, and remains so today. What the Royal Navy is doing, in essence, that what it's all about is three things. Firstly, sweeping the, the, the oceans clear of German oceanic trade um, and German warships, which is something they pretty much do within the first year of the war. Um, keeping the movement of Allied shipping, um, and in particular troop convoys back from the Empire, safe. Um, and then blockading Germany. And the first two jobs are taken care of within the first 12 months or so, but that last job is, is a, a commitment that lasts for the whole war. Um, and that is to, to stop German warships getting out, but also to stop German mercantile trade getting out and basically denying the use of the seas to Imperial Germany. That's a hard thing to sell to the public, um, to explain that very complex um, process. So the, the naval dimension gets overlooked and, and is still overlooked today, I feel. It must be very difficult to sell inaction, a lack of action, as a positive thing. Siggy, they suffered some very serious losses during the First World War in undertaking that, that task of keeping Britain in the fight and keeping the trade lanes open. How does the Commonwealth War Graves Commission go about commemorating those lost at sea, often without a trace? Um, I think it's it's actually something that was quite a challenge for the Admiralty and the Imperial War Graves Commission. I think really a, an important thing to remember is that prior to the First World War, there'd never been a sort of memorial erected for anybody lost at sea. I think if you look at the Battle of Trafalgar as an example, there are 36 monuments and 19 of those are just commemorating Nelson. So it's, it's really interesting that it just wasn't done before. And the Royal Navy had real kind of staunch traditions in burials at sea. So I think it, it was a bit of a, a conflict, perhaps, between their traditions and the Commission's needs to commemorate by name and have those individual names in perpetuity, because that's one of our, our founding principles. Um, so after a lot of toing and froing, um, it was decided that there should be three key naval memorials and they would be at the Manning ports. So that's Portsmouth, Plymouth and Chatham. Um, and the Manning ports are kind of seen as the, the ship and the crew's home base. So it was quite a symbolic reason to put those memorials there because it's seen as bringing those who had been lost or buried at sea back home. The so actual memorials were believed to cost around £70,000 for all three um, and we hoped we could get them done within two years and actually I think it was quite impressive considering you're coming out the end of a real sort of big conflict that we hadn't seen on that scale before for these big structures to get completed within that time frame. So alongside the naval memorials I think it's really important that we mentioned the Merchant Navy as well. Um, they'd did such kind of a sort of real impressive job during that time because without them there would have been a lot of things that would sort of you know reach a standstill um so they were sort of making sure that for, uh, the forces could get some food there was transport of raw materials manufacturing of munitions um and there was obviously quite a lot of heavy losses on their part as well um if you wouldn't mind indulging me i just want to just pick up on a couple of things siggy said that i think are just so so important 
Um, the first is the issue about um, you know lack of a battlefield. I think that is another reason why the, the naval contribution gets overlooked so frequently is, um, and also why there's a perception I think a misconception that, that the sailor's lot is somehow easier, because the, the sea clears up the mess. So we have a perception that naval fighting is somehow cleaner and less brutal than the fighting on land, particularly with the First World War. And it just isn't. If you read those accounts of naval battles, it is every bit as unpleasant, brutal, nasty as anything that takes place in the trenches. But there's nothing left afterwards. It all goes to the bottom of the sea and, and that's the end of it. Um, and the other point, I think, is, is the point that I would just reinforce so strongly that Siggy made about the Merchant Navy. The role of the Merchant Navy in both wars is so, so important. But there is a key difference with the First World War and the Second World War. In the First World War, the Merchant Navy doesn't have that recognition as a service that it has in the Second World War. In the First World War, they are often working in very poor conditions as, as individual employees of private companies, some of which are not the best employers in the world. Um, they get no recognition as, as members of the armed forces doing their bit, um, and that can make life very, very difficult for merchant seamen when they're ashore in between trips. Um, they have no kind of real identifying thing that makes it clear they're doing their bit. There are cases of abuse of merchant sailors, white feathers, all that kind of stuff, because people don't know what they're doing. So their lot is extremely hard in the First World War. And even in the opening months of the Second World War, um, in fact, it's only, I think, about a year into the Second World War that the merchant sailor finally continues to be paid after his ship is sunk. And that's one of the big scandals is that, they, you know, the merchant sailor who can do one of those awful, awful experiences in a lifeboat for several weeks before they're picked up, he's not being paid during that time because he stopped working. So it's a very, very hard role. Wow. So if you're, if you're as a merchant sailor, you are, your, your ship is sunk and you make it into a lifeboat... Yeah. Your, your pay yeah. stops the moment... Your pay stops when your ship goes down, yeah. And that continues into the Second World War. I think it's about a year into the Second World War when they finally address That's that. That's shocking, actually. That's really, really quite shocking because I think for the First World War, um, people forget the role, the vital role of the Merchant Navy. Yeah, people they see, do. You know, we remember the, the, the Battle of the Atlantic and keeping Britain fed yeah. against the U-boat menace, but that, that threat was just as prevalent during the First World War. Yeah, I mean, I would argue worse, actually, that the U-boats come closer to starving Britain out in the First World War than they ever get in the Second World War. The losses of shipping in 1917 into the beginning of 18 are astronomical. Um, and at one point, I think in the, in the spring of 17, they're, they're down to sort of three weeks of um, imported food. So it, it really is devastating in the First World War because they haven't got the um, the countermeasures that they have in World War II. Oh, I'd love to talk more about this. This uh, um, We're going to have to have another podcast about it's the another Merchant another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, but we need to move on. I think this is a perfect moment to move on to talk about the Second World War. So, um, Nick, 1939, Britain once again at war with Germany. Um, did the role of the Royal Navy change during the second world war i think this is the interesting thing is is britain not just the navy actually but the, the britain generally enters the second world war planning for a replay of the first world war so so all those building blocks are in place we have um, a strong continental ally in france uh, we have a strong defense line already built the maginot line we all know about that one um, and and the navy enters the war thinking it's business as usual they are almost in some places using the technology that they ended world war one with there are some key changes Everybody knows the submarine is going to be a big factor in this one. Uh, the Royal Navy has a strong aircraft carrier force, which was really just kind of a glint in their eye in, at the end of the, the First World War. Um, but the, the role is very similar. 
It's about sweeping trade free, um, you know, sweeping German trade from from the oceans, rounding up those German warships that might be out there. And we see that the Battle of the River Plate in in December 1939 is an exact carbon copy of the stuff that's going on in the First World War um, and blockading Germany into its home bases, preventing them from, from getting out. All of that changes in the summer of 1940. Um, so up until from, from September 39 to the summer of 1940, it's business as usual. France falls. The continental ally has gone. And Germany has an extended European coastline that goes right down to the Spanish frontier. And that changes the game entirely. And the second thing that changes the game entirely is the Italians, who we might recall were on our side in the First World War, throwing their lot with the Axis in the Second World War. So Britain has a water fight in the Mediterranean as well against a second, actually very powerful naval um, power um, without the French. Um, So, Siggy, um, after the First World War, as we've talked about, the CWGC built these magnificent memorials to commemorate the missing. Um, What what did they do for the Second World War? Um, I think really it was a really logical move on the part of the Commission. The committee had been established again with the Admiralty, um, and it was decided we would just extend the existing three naval memorials due to you know their, their impressive location and the fact that they were in public parkland, so there was a space to do it. Um, a, a key sort of aspect was is to touch on, as Nick was saying, that the Second World War did bring some changes for the Royal Navy, and the Admiralty Committee actually agreed for some other smaller memorials to be erected to commemorate separate branches of the Navy. Um, so we've got one at Leon Solent, which is for the fleet air arm, Liverpool for the merchant seamen serving with the Royal Navy, and then at Lowestoft for the Royal Naval Patrol Service. Uh, but the, the actual extensions to the naval memorials are, again, really impressive in their own right. But it was key that they were designed in such a way that it creates one separate sort of memorial. They're not seen as kind of two components, First World War, Second World War. And at all three of them, you've got four larger than life seamen structures, um, all slightly different clothing and attires, kind of nod into all the different branches. But you've also got at Plymouth, um, I've kind of separated this one out because it's, I think, my favourite of the sculptures. You've got Poseidon and he's riding two seahorse and it's a bronze sculpture and it's huge. You can't miss it when you're there. The sculpture is all kind of tying into kind of the maritimes of superstitions and traditions. And I think that's a real kind of clever design that Morph was making sure these structures really do tie into the men and women that we're commemorating. So, Siggy. We built all these memorials by the sea. What does it take to maintain stone and bronze (sighs) next to salty sea air? Is it just a case that you need to give them a a quick jet wash over to keep them looking spick and span? Ah, Never, ever, ever jet wash. Um, (laughs) So I think the problem is, is their coastal location. You've obviously got kind of, you know, the sea winds coming in. It's the salt water. If we were building these today, we really wouldn't have used Portland. Um, it's a real soft stone and the kind of the, the sand being whipped around kind of creates quite an abrasive effect. So you do find that there's a loss of definition, um, especially if you're looking at the four captured lions, which are at the bottom of the obelisks. They've kind of lost some of their angular carving to them. I think it's conservation now It is something we we kind of understand what's gone on in the past and we don't want to make a rash decision and kind of jump ahead and make fixes and changes 
So that's something we'll just have to to monitor. Uh, I'm I'm sure we could all we could all talk uh, talk all day about it. It's, it's a fascinating uh, thing to talk about. But um, hopefully, for you guys at home listening in, uh, we've given you a little bit of a flavour of the role of the Royal Navy during the World Wars and the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to commemorate the fallen. And now we're going to sail straight on to our second topic of the week, the British Pacific Fleet during the Second World War. So, uh, we've just celebrated the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, and now all eyes are turning to the events leading up to the 15th of August, Victory over Japan Day. Um, With this in mind, we wanted to highlight the men and women of the British Pacific Fleet. The role of the American Navy in the Pacific is well known, from the events at Pearl Harbor to the turning point at Midway and the island-hopping campaign across the Pacific. But what about the British Royal Navy? They never seem to be mentioned, and it might surprise you to know that the largest fleet ever put to sea in the history of the Royal Navy was the British Pacific Fleet from 1944 to 1945. Nick, you are, you are the man to talk to about this. What was the British Pacific Fleet, and what did they get up to during the Second World War? If you'll forgive me, I'm just going to rewind briefly because the um, the um, the story of the British Pacific Fleet starts with with a very difficult time for the Royal Navy. Um, we talked earlier about overstretch. The Royal Navy has just about got well has, has comfortably got the resources to deal with a war with Germany. They can just about hold their line with a war with Germany and Italy. Um, they've always made it very clear. Senior planners have made it very clear that that fighting Germany, Italy, and Japan at the same time is just not possible to resource. Um, so everybody is fending off the idea of a war against Japan. Um, but nevertheless, inexorably, uh, we move towards war with Japan. Um, tensions get worse and worse and worse. It becomes pretty clear that it's going to happen. And the Royal Navy is just not in a position to fight it. Um, and we see that perhaps most clearly when the war in the Far East begins, obviously well known with the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 7th, 1941. The Americans do the heavy lifting in the Far East, and we shouldn't take that away from them at all for one minute. Um, The the Battle of the Atlantic, largely fought by British and Canadian ships and men, I think we should remember that, because uh, we've got a new Tom Hanks film coming out, haven't we? The world is going to believe that the US won the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, Massive operations like the Normandy landings, 86% of the Normandy landings are British or Canadian warships. Um, So the British are doing their own in the European theatre, but they cannot do the Pacific. So the Americans do all the heavy lifting in the Pacific until the Germans are beaten. And that's the point where it gets interesting for our story of the BPF, because um, in advance of VJ, VE Day, really, sort of after after the start of 1945, it's very, very clear that the Germans are beaten. The Germans are beaten at sea after the Normandy landings. And those enormous forces that have been kept in scapa flow to keep a watch on German ships like the Tirpitz are no longer required. And what happens then is the British start to build up um, a, a, Pacific, a proto-Pacific fleet to go and join the Americans in, um, in, in defeating Japan. And this is hugely political for both allies. Both allies are now starting to think about a world after the Second World War is over. And although a lot of this is dressed up um, on both sides um, as, as um, two, two allies working together, um, operationally that's probably what they're doing, but, but actually the British want to be there because they want to send a signal to their, their vanquished colonies in Asia that, that Britain is still a force to be reckoned with in, in the Far East. Um, the Americans don't want that. 
the Americans want to be seen as the sole victors over Japan to establish their influence and their strategic power in, in the region after the war. So there's, there's some very high-level political haggling. And also there are some, some low-level but actually very valid um, operational problems. Um, it's a whole different supply chain. The Americans are using, at, at the stage when they start talking about this, they're using different equipment, different aircraft, different calibres of ammunition. Um, the British just do things differently. Um, so the American fleet out there is not very keen to have British warships kind of bolted on. So there's a lot of haggling and horse trading goes on. Um, but the, the personal relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt is sufficiently strong that eventually those, those obstacles are overcome. Um, and that the commitment is accepted that the, the British Pacific Fleet will go out, it will join, it will fight under the command of the Americans, thus recognising that the, you know, the Americans have done all the heavy lifting out there. Um, it will be a British Pacific Fleet for us. For the Americans, it will be a task force of the absolutely enormous, inconceivably vast United States Pacific Fleet, um, which is, is huge. Um, but the British and the Royal Navy in particular have to learn a different way of fighting wars out there. What a remarkable conflict with so many various elements to it. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask Siggy in a moment about our commemoration of these individuals. But Nick, why don't we ever hear about this part, uh, this role that the Royal Navy played out in the Far East during this period? I think it's, I think it's a couple of things, really. I think some of it is just the age-old problem. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the Navy's operations taking place over the horizon. You can't get any further over the horizon than the Pacific. So um, you've got that for a start. Um, at home, after May 1945, anyone who's not directly involved with someone who's fighting in the Pacific or in Burma. Obviously, we mustn't forget, the, you know, not just the army and the RAF, but there is a naval force operating off the Burmese coast as well in support of the army, much smaller, the Eastern Fleet by then. Um, they, they tend to get overlooked. People forget that they're, they're out there, they're doing their business. The, the 14th Army in Burma is known as the Forgotten Army, and you can equally well apply that to the, to the BPF. Um, so it's those two factors, I think. It's a long, long way away for the bulk of the armed forces, which are sort of demobilising like mad in Europe, it's nothing to do with them. So that, and, and also the Americans have colonised the popular culture of the, of the Pacific War. But with some justification, I'm, I'm the first to, to take odds with American colonisation of other bits of, of um, history, but with some justification, the Americans have been there longer, they've been doing a lot more, there's a hell of a lot more of them. So it's very much seen as an, an American theatre. So the writing that comes out and the films that are made and all everything around the Pacific War is all about Americans from the, the very end of the war. So all those things sort of conspire to, to it all being very overlooked, I think. So, Siggy, they, the British Pacific Fleet and the Royal Navy in the Far East during the Second World War play a significant role um, and suffer small compared to the fighting in the Atlantic and in, and in Europe and the Mediterranean, small casualties but still significant losses, particularly a number of key vessels. Um, how does the Commonwealth War Graves Commission go about commemorating these people who, you know, are, are serving on the, at the uttermost ends of the earth? Um, I, I think, obviously, the, where they've been lost or buried at sea, they, again, are on the, the three naval memorials. Uh, the slight difference is, with there being such a sort of a, a heavy navy presence in that part of the world, where ships were sunk or, um, you know, that sort of men were sort of taken on shore, there are obviously burials within the commission cemeteries. Um, so some of the, the key ones that I've, I've looked at in the Far East 
we've got Kanchanaburi War Cemetery in Thailand. Um, and obviously during the, the Japanese occupation there, there was a lot of, sort of prisoner of war camps and you had the death railway. Um, so it's sort of all of the sort of the men and women who were dying along that railway are laid to rest pretty much where they fell. And it was after the war that we came in and sort of concentrated these burials in these cemeteries. Uh, so along with Kanchanaburi, we've also got Tao Chan War Cemetery and Rangoon over in Myanmar. Um, so again, a lot of prisoner of war casualties and quite often in those cemeteries, we've got sort of Navy and Marine personnel buried there. Um, the other one, which is sort of our largest, uh, is Kranji War Cemetery in Singapore. The sort of, I guess there, there are also Navy personnel there or volunteer reserves. But I think something that really ties it in is the Kranji Memorial, which sits sort of right in the very centre of the cemetery. And the way that that was designed is is actually a nod to all the different arms that sort of took part in the Second World War. So you've got the, the columns, which kind of are sort of for the army regiments. The wings of the memorial are the wings of a plane. And then you've got the sort of centre fin, which is symbolic of the submarine. So although they're not commemorated on there per se, the architect was, was really keen to kind of show that that part of the world really was affected um, and all part of, of sort of the army, Royal Navy, were, were all kind of taking part. Um, so I think they're, they're really beautiful places to go visit. But certainly, I guess because there aren't individual memorials, it, it is kind of adding to that forgotten element of the war. Uh, I think you, you raise a really interesting uh, point there that I people probably forget. Um, Royal Navy personnel who are present at places like Singapore, when Singapore falls, uh, end up in captivity and then are taken to build um, the, the Death Railway in, in Burma and Thailand. And there, like army uh, companions, die of, of illness and in the conditions there um, and are commemorated by, by the Commission. A fascinating part of Royal Navy history that people completely, I, I, I certainly, completely forgot about. Really interesting. Can I jump in? on that because there's some interesting stuff on that um it, it does always get forgotten um and and we, we know prince of wales and repulse but there's a string of naval defeats um they, they kind of cobble together a, um an anglo um u.s dutch command to try and hold the line in in asia and it fails utterly more british ships are lost as part of those combined battles in places like um uh well the various actions actually right right the way across so um and they all generate survivors and a lot of those survivors become prisoners of war i think um it's worth a little aside um the sailor that becomes a survivor becomes a prisoner of war his lot is even worse than the soldier because if you imagine um, those soldiers that go into captivity in, in Singapore, that's a mass surrender of a beaten army. They go into captivity with all their kit. Um, they at least go into captivity with a full belly. Um, things get very, very bad progressively for all of them. But those sailors are guys who've been fished out of the water with nothing. Um, they're often in just a pair of shorts and a shirt, and that's their lot, and they go straight into captivity. Um, there are cases of, of the Japanese executing sailors when they pick them out of the water. There are all sorts of really unspeakable things with, with sailors. So, yes, sailors become prisoners. Um, we have some wonderful stuff in the collections here at, at the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Um, we've got this wonderful flag that was dropped um, when they liberated the camps um, 
uh, prison of war camp was overflown by a Royal Air Force aircraft and they dropped a Union flag out um, for them to lay out as an identifier. And it's been signed by um, a whole number of the, the remaining survivors from HMS Exeter all, all signed this flag um, along with lots of other sailors. And I think there's some soldiers and airmen on there as well. So, you know, th- these guys went through absolute hell. And yeah, the, everything that you imagine as a far, far East prison of war experience, there are sailors amongst absolutely all of them, including in Japan, um, the prisoners that were you know sent down the mines and, and all sorts of things in, in mainland Japan. There's, there's sailors amongst them as well. And as we said for, for the last section where we were talking about the commemoration of these individuals, these, these places of remembrance and commemoration in the Far East are all about people. Um, but I imagine, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Siggy, because I know you've just got back from a trip to the Far East, which I'm very jealous of, I imagine the commemoration of individuals out in the Far East uh, presents its its own unique challenges uh, for, for the Commission. Um, yes, it, it does. I think, I mean, a lot of that comes down to d- different climates. Um, so if you take Cranji as an example, Singapore is, is very warm, very humid, um, and it gets a lot of thunderstorms and there's sort of almost no warning. Um, so I was there one of the, the days and we were luckily actually in the sort of the base office. Um, but it was really, really clear, really sunny. And then all of a sudden it's bucketing it down and you've got really impressive lightning shows going on. Uh, and it can be quite a challenge, especially for the Cranji Memorial, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so that was unveiled in 1957. So since then, the, the waterproof coating on the wings of the structure had cracked in places and it was allowing the water to, to pool and, and go through and therefore affect the engravings on the panels beneath. So I went over with my colleague Gaurav um, to sort of run the project there to get that relayed um and i think the the other things that you i guess kind of forget about when you're walking around the uk and we just have to deal with foggy weather and occasional creepy crawlies that aren't particularly poisonous or dangerous um in cranji they have an issue with wild boar um and it was not that of two sort of in the distant past um that a wild boar was causing a bit of a scuffle between our gardeners um a little bit of you know bloodshed and and kind of drama so we do have signs now on our website and at the cemetery warning you of wild boar uh, i have to say i was disappointed i didn't see any when i was there um kind of hoping to see some action but sadly sadly not that time so maybe if i get to go again i'll i'll get to see some wildlife oh, this sounds like a it sounds like a solid a solid idea for a for a trip out i'm sure nick will uh, will join us on the 100 percent yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah wild boar hunting, wild boar hunting and, a, and a, a visit to the commission's memorial in singapore the karanji memorial sounds sounds fantastic well thank you both for giving up your time today you've been fantastic guests now nick and siggy are going to be back a little bit later and they're going to be telling me their fast facts but after the break i'm going to be talking to rich hills the commission's director for africa asia and pacific area about his team's work out in the far east join us in remembering the men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice for peace across the world by sharing your tribute to our wall of remembrance you can share a couple of lines and a photo about a loved one by using the hashtag share your tribute or by visiting the website do you want to help engage the next generation with the stories of men and women who lost their lives in the two world wars 
Then join the Commonwealth Wargraves Foundation today and help to support our education programs, digital exhibitions and much more to help keep their stories alive. Visit the website to find out more at www.cwgc.org forward slash support hyphen us. Welcome back. You might not know this, but the CWGC works on every continent on the planet except Antarctica, and one region where some of our most beautiful and inspiring places of commemoration are is the Far East. Now, we've already been talking about the Royal Navy in this episode and the role it had in the Far East during the Second World War, and so we wanted to continue with this theme. And so, who better to join us this time for our next instalment of our version of Desert Island Discs, Desert Island Cemeteries, than our Director for Asia, Africa and the Pacific Area, Rich Hills. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you very much, Max. It's good to be here. Rich, before we get into your Desert Island Cemetery selection, tell us a little bit about how you came to work for the CWGC and what the job of Director of Africa, Asia and Pacific Area actually entails. Thanks, Max. So I left the armed forces in uh, 2013. After 23 years, I was in the Royal Marines and I wanted to uh, work in the third sector, not-for-profit sector. And um, at the time, I was looking at all the different organisations that were looking for um, looking for sort of management staff, and um, and the commission popped up, and um, and I really liked the team that I was interviewed by. So when I was offered the job, um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Okay. So, what is your first desert island cemetery? Well, my first desert island cemetery will probably be Kohima. Um, it's if we're, if we're talking Far East, if we're talking the rest of the world, I do have a a, a another favourite, <laughs> which is actually comes above that. But in terms of the Far East, and I, I class that as Indian subcontinent and, and the Far East because it was obviously all involved in 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 the uh, in the, the Far Eastern War. Kahima is probably my my top site. Kahima is remarkable for its historical significance. We don't have across the world that many sites that are truly battlefield sites it is one of the sort of pivotal places where the japanese army was was stopped in its tracks um during the burma campaign and and, and for that reason it should rank up there along with you know sort of normandy anzio uh, you know uh, and alamein these sort of places um but obviously because it was the forgotten war it's never quite as the forgotten campaign it's never quite on the same sort of standard of visibility but it's a remarkable site, and um, having flown for several hours from Delhi to Dimbapore, um, up into the state of um, Nagaland in northeast India, it's then a four-hour drive up into the mountains to get to this little hill station, Kahima, which is sort of nestles in in in, in the foothills of, of, of the sort of Manipur range, and perched in the middle of this um, of this sort of slightly large village hill village is is our cemetery on the original spot where the japanese army was fought to a standstill you know and it's it's particularly exciting because it was actually the governor's residence in the time that used to occupy that site and the tennis courts the outline of the tennis courts are still there in the cemetery and we have, we have maintained those for sort of some 75 years that's 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 my number one number one site Incredible. I, I've had the privilege of meeting a number of veterans of the Battle of Kahima and read a little bit about that, that, that terrible battle. Um, and our cemetery really is a, a remarkable place of, of commemoration and it has a tennis court. 
What an incredible feature. Yeah, it, 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 it does, and it actually go uh, quite uh, quite remarkably. We have a raised cross of sacrifice, unusually on top of a shelter on the tennis courts, and that's sort of um, that's where it stands. We also have a, 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 one of the original trees from the battle. Um, the site is also it's it's stepped. Um, it's, it's it's quite a, it's a it's a terraced site, which is unusual. It sort of goes up and graduated steps, and um, and it's also like most of our sites in northeast India, they are bronze plaques. They're not. They're not headstones. They are bronze plaques, like they are in Myanmar and in, and in Thailand. Yeah, and um, some very impressive views on a on, on a nice day. Um, I just want to say it's, it's maintained by our our Indian team, um, who currently, due to COVID, are not able to actually access the site because of local restrictions. They are they are locked down. But it's uh, uh, we have a small Indian team up there, about uh, nine or ten guys, run by a local manager called uh, Mr. Luvi Sakosi. Um, so yeah managed by the Indian team and um, under normal conditions done done very very well indeed so that was number one what's your second uh, desert island cemetery well my second uh, cemetery uh, will be Tao Chan in, in Myanmar uh, now now Myanmar is a very special place obviously it was Burma now Myanmar they have they have three sites there managed by our manager uh, Mr. Tet Mon and we have we've got about 19 staff in Myanmar who run three sites uh, Tambay Uziat in the south near a place called Mool Mine, which was the northern end of where the Burma Railway finished. And that's, again, it, it, it was a close run to second place for uh, for this one. Um, so that's in the south. And in, in and around Yangon, the capital of Myanmar, we have two sites. Rangoon War Cemetery, which is in the middle, which is, again, a beautiful, lush site. But, but Tao Chan is about an hour outside the capital, and it, it tipped it for me. It, it is an absolutely enormous site. Um, some 6,300 graves, and right in the middle of it is this huge, um, iconic structure, um, which to, to me, you know, matches the impressiveness of Tiep Val or the Menin Gate. It's for me, this is the this is the Tiep Val of, you know, of the Far East. It's it, it is absolutely iconic structure, um, a huge sort of row of palisades, um, which which sits slap bang in the middle of this this enormous site. Again, um, all all bronze plaques. Um, we've got quite a large team there, sort of seven or eight uh, guys managed by 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 Tetmon, and the memorial itself has got twenty seven thousand names on of uh, of casualties um, whose graves are unknown out in the Far East, even bigger than Singapore, which has got twenty four thousand. You know, so in terms of names, not not the same sort of amount of names as you know Tetval or Meningate, but just the size of it and and the way it it, it, it sort of imposes on you as you walk in. It's it's it's, it's a very very majestic place. Um, it's it's incredibly popular site um i mean they literally get thousands a day of people coming in um they, they get some some um westerners but mostly local people who go in um to sort of you know use the site as a place to sort of reflect and 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 wander around and, and to find sort of peace of mind so it's extremely popular on a very very busy road um and yes it's the the scale there's the scale of it and then the standards there absolutely blow me away so it's it's by far and away that's that's my that's my tiep vale of the far east which is easily as it is impressive um although obviously i'm i'm not biased clearly but, so. I, I, i've been to tiep vale many times the uh, the more memorial to the missing of the somme uh, in northern france but not many of us get to go to uh, out to burma to to visit uh, to visit that site so it's wonderful to hear a little bit about it and to hear that so many people go and visit it that's incredible so uh, finally what about your your third choice uh well that this was a this this was a tough one um so i've chosen um stanley military cemetery in in hong kong um it's a it's it's quite a small site um and it's 
it's it's it's, it's not a sort of a, a grand a grand imposing site, but it's 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 a very historic site, and we've got a number of uh, sort of graves and, and markers there. For, you know, you know from a di- from from a slightly different time. It's uh it it sits in a part of the city where you have this remarkable view of the harbour. It's incredibly tranquil. It's 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 on a sort of a, a rolling sort of hill and a bank. It's quite difficult to describe, um, but it's got some sort of graves there that are are sort of from the sort of late nineteenth century, which 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 we maintain. Um, um, it's also next to a very large uh, sort of military barracks as well, which is you know, um, which is quite unusual. But it's just I, I think it's 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 our extremely well kept um, sort of rows of Commonwealth War graves flanking all these very very historic tombs and sarcophaguses, which we maintain as well uh, on behalf of the MOD. And it's just got this fantastic view. It's yeah, I'd, I'd sort of equate it to a, a sort of a Hong Kong version of. Um, Lone Pine down in the, down in Gallipoli, where you you sort of look at out across, um, you know, Suvla Bay, and and you, and you see the Sphinx. It's that sort of kind of view. Um, again, you know, it it wouldn't be on many people's sort of top lists. I think it's just because of the of the history that surrounds it, and and the the people that are actually you know, those those that are buried in there. So it, it's a mixture of really old, and our core sort of graves as well, and uh, and very well maintained by our, our Hong Kong team, led by Mr. Morris Chung, um, who's um, who's got a team of some sort of uh, 10, 10 guys out in Hong Kong um, who manage actually some sort of 19 you know, sites around the city uh, in all sorts of places. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing those. I'm sure everybody listening will join me in thanking you and your team for the incredible work that you do out in the Far East maintaining the Commonwealth War Graves Commission sites out there. Now, on Desert Island Cemeteries, uh, it is a tradition that the guests are given uh, a book dedicated uh, to the history of the Commissioner, and that's The Unending Vigil by Philip Longworth. So we're going to give you that so that you can take on your journey. That's very kind. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Uh, You're also allowed to choose one luxury item to take with you. Um, So what would be your luxury item to take with you on your expedition to CWGC sites in the Far East? Well, um, I would take what I always take when I go to visit the teams overseas, which is a very small sort of hiker's hip pack, which is about um, sort of 15 centimetres by 15 centimetres. Uh, it's absolutely essential because we spend many hours, myself and the team spend many hours on the road, um, driving through some very hot, dusty, dirty places, literally for hours on end to get to the site, which may be in the middle of the desert or the jungle or you know wherever these sites are. And in that little hip um, pack is a passport, a bottle of water, uh, um, some mosquito repellent, and some dry biscuits. Um, because you can get stuck for hours in various interesting places, and as long as you have those four, oh, and and obviously some um, some local currency, um, you know. So it's it, it's just big enough to get a couple of thousand rupees, uh, a small bottle of water, some some sort of dry honey biscuits, and, and a passport, and, and that's and, that, and and that's literally all you need, you know, whilst you're on the road in Napa. Um, so no, absolutely an essential piece of kit, Max. I would say essential. Sounds very, very sensible. Well, thank you, Rich, uh, so much for joining me today. It's been fascinating to have you on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Max. Anytime. And now it's time for everyone's favourite part of the show, Fast Facts. Nick and Siggy are back with me, primed and ready, I'm sure, to share their facts. So, from me, it's a really interesting one that I discovered a few years ago when looking into the history of the Plymouth Naval Memorial. Now, all the Naval Memorials are identical, except 
that. On the top of the Plymouth Naval Memorial is the Copper Globe. And during the Second World War, Plymouth, of course, was badly bombed. Now, some of the defences were made up of barrage balloons, great big balloons with heavy trailing cables that were designed to catch German aircraft as they flew over the city. Now, one of these barrage balloons escaped in a storm, and one of those heavy cables went and bumped into the top of the Commission's Naval Memorial in Plymouth, leaving a big dent. So I suppose my fast fact is simply that Commission memorials built during the First World War were then witnesses to the fighting during the Second World War, and they still bear the marks of that fighting. So next time you're in Plymouth, do go take a look at the top of the memorial and see if you can spot the Second World War damage. Okay, Siggy, how about you? What's your fast fact? Cool. So um, mine is, earlier I was mentioning at Portsmouth that the four seamen sculptures were quite badly corroded and in the early 2000s we took the decision to have those completely redone like for like. Um, when I first joined the commission I was doing some archive research in 2016 and I came across some documentation to do with the replacements and it suggested that the originals from the 1920s, uh, sort of or sorry, the 1950s, had, be, had been kept by that stonemason. Um, so by 2017, we'd actually obtained those original sculptures back. Um, we used two of them at the Chelsea Flower Show in 2017, which was the Commission's centenary year. Um, and we actually won the silver award for the Artisan Garden. Um, those have now been installed in the Rose Garden at Brookwood, right next to the Canadian building. Um, and one of them is located at the Commission's Visitor Centre in Bora. So if you get to go, you can actually kind of see it up in person. And it's got real kind of tangible history because you, you can touch those structures. So for me, I think that was a real highlight of working in the Commission and shows that if you do dig around in the archives, you can kind of come across these amazing finds and to kind of have them back and put them back out on display is is a real is a real beautiful thing I think. Fantastic. Nick how about you? Uh, yeah my, my first fact is about battleships basically so um, if you imagine that the, the battleship the long evolution of the of the battleship from um, the wooden walls of, of Lord Nelson's time with HMS Victory the line of battleship right through to the, the kind of the armoured ships emerging through HMS Warrior and then into turreted ships and then HMS Dreadnought um, and then the line of dreadnoughts and super dreadnoughts that formed the backbone of the Royal Navy in the First World War and were still important ships in the Second World War the last time a battleship fires its guns in anger is in the bombardment of Japan by the British Pacific Fleet at the end of the Second World War. That is the swan song of the battleship. They've already evolved from ships that are out there really to fight other warships to a, a less um, less prestigious role, if you like, bombarding shore targets for the army and providing anti-aircraft defence for aircraft carriers. But that, that moment um, right at the end of the war in August 1945, bombarding the coast of Japan is the last time a British battleship, a Royal Navy battleship, fires its guns in action. I shall never look at battleships again. They were such a short moment in history. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for both <laughs> of those. That's really good. Well, it's time to say thank you and goodbye to my guests today, Nick, Siggy and Rich. Thank you very much for joining me. Next time... 
Peter Francis will be picking up a pen and paintbrush to explore the poetry and art of the two world wars. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you'll get notified when the next episode is made available. If you like what you've heard from us so far, please do leave us a review and don't forget to tell your friends and family about this podcast. The 1.7 million stories of the CWGC was brought to you by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. We'd like to thank our guests, Nick Hewitt, Siggy Lee and Rich Hills. This episode was hosted by me, Max Dutton, and produced by Jack Sheeran. You can discover more about the work of the CWGC and research your own family history on our website at www.cwgc.org.